Previously on Bullets and Rust. Is this how I'm going to die? In some warehouse by the river? Why did I take this case? My name's Zeke Adams, and I'm an independent investigator. I just finished a simple case of corporate espionage when a big one fell right into my lap. Abner Forrest, an executive at the Synthetic Corporation, he was being blackmailed. Someone found out about his coke habit and his sugar babe girlfriend, and they'd taken the pictures to prove it. Now, Abner was hiring me to get to the bottom of it. An hour later, my former partner Blake West picked me up in his squad car. He tells me that the county prosecutor's son has been kidnapped, and right before the biggest case this city has seen in fifty years. I had no idea where all this was going to lead. If I had, maybe I'd have had the good sense to turn it down.
The last half hour had been a whirlwind. Blake West, a police detective and a former friend, he just picked me up outside my agency. At first, at first I thought he was arresting me for some petty bullshit, like trespassing or breaking and entering. You know, the kind of Mickey Mouse shit that's part and parcel of being a private investigator. But as it turns out, it was worse. He had a case. It didn't take us long to reach the fancy condos on the Superior Viaduct. Two decades ago, this was a pretty rough part of town. Now it's a stomping grounds for yuppies and divorcees with a nice view. The viaduct is just across the Cuyahoga from downtown, north of the recently gentrified neighborhood called Ohio City. There, brew pubs and trendy restaurants are a big part of Cleveland's recent revival. One of these condos is owned by Killian O'Malley, the city's top prosecutor, and he's working on one of the most high-profile cases in Cleveland's history certainly since they locked up Frank Russo, and it has the eyes of the nation fixed right on Cleveland. Then, six days ago, his son Liam disappeared. No one knows what happened to him. All of this would be bad enough already, but the case is set to begin in less than two weeks. To keep the trial from being derailed, and to keep himself from being removed from the case, O'Malley didn't let anyone know for several days, long after the most promising leads had already dried up. It's the kind of cold calculation that would be unthinkable to the average person. If this leaks before his kid is found, O'Malley's career will be over. And without any leverage, the kidnappers might decide that keeping the kid alive is too much trouble. On our way uptown, Blake fills me in on the pertinent details. He'd swept the condo with a pair of forensics techs that he could trust. They'd found nothing. There was no sign of a struggle, no broken windows or doors. The lock didn't have the telltale scratches of being picked. It was the kind of case where suspicion falls quickly on the parents, and where people begin to ask some unsettling questions. Blake must have sensed that this was where my mind was going. He quickly poured cold water all over it. Ten minutes with him will tell you they couldn't have done it. I refuse to take his word for it. The entire reason he's asking me to help him is because he knows how good I am. Good at getting into other people's heads. The kid's nine, old enough to know to protect himself, too young to run away. Too young for a rich kid, is what he really meant. There's plenty of nine-year-olds who run away, but they're almost always found with the friend of a relative, and since there was no sign of a struggle, the family was immediately suspect. Except for one thing, we found a plastic cap on the floor, under the bed. A plastic cap? From a syringe. Is anyone in the family diabetic? They're not using anything that needs a needle, we checked. The lab looked at it, but there's not much there. Drugging the kid would make it easier to get him out of the condo without a struggle, but how could you get that close without anyone noticing? Something didn't add up. All signs pointed to one of the parents, but Blake wasn't having it. He said it wasn't that simple. And he's experienced. As much as he's a corrupt, vainglorious prick, I've never known him to be sloppy. Is there any other family? Killian's extendeds are all in Boston. His wife's parents are dead, and all she has is a sister. A sister, huh? I assume you looked into her? Blake nodded. She's got an airtight alibi for the night of the kidnapping, but don't worry. You'll get a chance to talk to her. She's... You'll just have to see her. He smirked like a 12-year-old kid looking at his dad's Playboy. Not that today's kids need magazines like that. Honestly. I shudder imagining what's lurking in the average teenage boy's search history. Anyway, 
We finally reach the viaduct a few minutes later. Imagine a brick road that rises up off the hill, like it's to form a bridge across the river. But before it even reaches the water's edge, the road just stops. There's a concert venue along the riverbank, a large white tent called the Nautica Pavilion. Instead of cars, the road is lined with condos rising from both sides, and a few trendy little restaurants with patio seating. Look across the river and the skyscrapers of downtown catch the light of the setting sun. The terminal tower is almost a hundred years old, but it still dominates our skyline. Our city has more than just its roots in the past. New York is always constantly reinventing itself, but Cleveland wears its heritage on its sleeve. Efforts to gentrify the city crest and break on the shores of the Cuyahoga, the river that splits the city in two. On this side, new condos and vegan dining are all the rage, but several hundred yards away, we still have a building with Rockefeller emblazoned across its roofline, even a hundred years after Standard Oil booked it for New York City. Blake and I enter the condo building and ride the elevator up to the ninth floor. Thankfully, Blake stopped talking once he'd shared everything he knew about the case. Killian owns a condo at the end of the hall. The door opened, and we were greeted by a slight woman with dark brown hair and pronounced cheekbones. Come in. She slammed the door shut the moment we were inside. Even though I'd never met her before, I knew that this must be O'Malley's wife, Kindle. She had the sunken look in her eyes that told me she wasn't sleeping well. The furtive movements told me that she was on edge. And while she wasn't unattractive, it was obvious that the last decade had been hard. This is him? It is, Blake answered. The voice had come from the deep shadows of a side hallway. He stepped forward slowly, the darkness sliding off his face like a veil. I'd seen Killian O'Malley plenty of times before, both on TV and in court, but he looked quite different now. His face, it was almost formed. He took my hand in his, and squeezed with an uncomfortable firmness. I remember you. You were involved in that home invasion case, right? A year and a half ago, a married couple was attacked in their home. A masked gunman tied them up and robbed them. Since no one was harmed, it hadn't made much news. The wife hired me soon after. She was convinced that the police weren't going to help her get her jewels back. Family heirlooms, apparently. Two weeks later, I identified their assailant. The couple's basement had flooded a few weeks before, and a teenage employee of the flood company used his access as a chance to case the house. Of course, then he was stupid enough to pawn all the jewelry at local shops. All he had to do was take a couple-hour drive to Pittsburgh or Columbus, and he might have gotten away with it. At the trial, I'd been called to the witness stand. The case was a distant memory until O'Malley brought it up. Now it all came flooding back. Yeah, that was me. That was nice work. Never would have nailed that punk if it wasn't for you. I shrugged. The case hadn't exactly been my best work, but Killian wanted me to like him. Already I could feel the weight of his gaze. The overly strong handshake, the unwavering stare. He had all the marks of a man struggling to make everyone think that he was the most powerful person in the room. A lot of folks wouldn't have thought to put all that together. The subtle jab at the shoddy police work didn't go unnoticed by Blake but he had the good sense to keep his mouth shut. The department needed Killian. They wanted this solved quietly as much as he did. All right, let's get down to it, I said. There's no use wasting any time. Killian nodded. He gestured for us to follow him down the hall. 
I glanced into the child's bedroom as I passed by, but it was already clean. Clean enough to know that someone had gone through it since the kid disappeared. There was also an office. Further down the hall, I noticed a patch of drywall that had been sloppily repaired. The extra spackle pushed out from the otherwise flat surface, a bruise that hadn't changed color. Finally, we reached a living room. Two of the walls were windows with a slim metal brace. Outside, a balcony looked out over the viaduct. The sliding glass door was next to the kitchen, with an aftermarket lock that had been added to replace the standard latch. That meant getting in would require a key. The furniture was clean, modern. A coffee table made of metal and glass, sleek couch, a pair of matching chairs. They all had straight edges and synthetic texture. The large plasma television looked like it was never turned on, and it was flanked on both sides by a pair of paintings. Soft, inoffensive watercolors of a skyline that you could see for real just by looking over your shoulder. Can I get you anything? Lake and I shook our heads. The O'Malley's sat on the long couch, and I sat in one of the two chairs that faced them. I expected Blake to sit in the other, but he preferred to stand, slipping into place over my left shoulder. Why don't you run me through it, I said, trying not to show how uncomfortable I felt. It's a skill I use more often than you might expect. Killian's eyes, they flashed over my shoulder to Blake, then back at me. They moved so fast that I might have missed it if I hadn't been paying close attention. When I'm debating over whether or not to take a case, it's important to be wary of the client. Taking on a case that's larger than you can manage is a recipe for disaster, and taking on a client you can't predict is even worse. I don't need to trust him. I've worked for plenty of people I didn't trust. But I do need to be able to know when I'm being lied to. I need to know if he's going to panic if I say the wrong thing. Working with people you can't anticipate? That's a good way to get yourself killed. At that point, I didn't see Kindle as much of a concern. If she was the sort of woman to kill her own kid, I figured that Blake and the other yahoos in the department would have sussed that out. It was an assumption, the kind I should have avoided making. But I can't exactly go back in time. Of course, there was always the possibility that I was being set up. Set up to take the blame for someone else's mess. But if that was the case... Killian was likely involved, so I kept my attention focused right on him. The momentary flick of his eyes was followed by a flicker of his tongue. I thought that the detective would have given you all the details. He told me plenty, but now I want to hear it from you. If I'd had my druthers, I'd have interviewed them separately. But that's hard to do without letting on that you suspect that person of something. And right now, I wanted the O'Malley's to assume that I was on their side. Besides, the cops had interviewed them both already. They'd had six days to get their story straight. Killian's eyes narrowed, but he leaned back in his seat. The move was calculated to make him look like he was letting his guard down. But the steely look in his eyes revealed the truth. This man was a predator. He was reading me as much as I was reading him. His wife sat beside him, looking as nervous and uncomfortable as she had before. She didn't need to put on much of an act, or if she did, it was a much simpler role, the concerned mother. As for Killian, he was the cold-hearted bastard so focused on his own career that he'd hindered the investigation of his own son's kidnapping. If we found the kid, he'd probably spin it as some clever move to help the police. But if this leaked early, his career would be ruined.
in either case, without the help of media attention, finding the kid was going to be a lot harder. All of that for the sake of a reputation. Based purely on his demeanor, my gut said that this wasn't out of character. That was the kind of person that Killian O'Malley was, a man willing to go high-risk, high-reward with his son's life. Was Kindle already blaming him for their son not being home? How long would that take? If we found the boy dead, just how much responsibility would he bear for not going to the press? Those were questions I couldn't answer tonight. For now, I just needed to listen to whatever came from Killian's lips. I'd learned just as much as I could from the way he carried himself. I know I don't come off as a family man, but I love my wife and I love my son. Most people wouldn't feel compelled to spell that out, but Killian knew how this all looked. We were out, Kin and I. We've been busy. He's been busy. It's been stressful. We'd planned a weekend together a few weeks ahead of time. Reservations at a nice restaurant, trip to a hotel. Which restaurant? Fahrenheit. It's my favorite. Fahrenheit was a trendy little spot in Tremont, run by a chef named Rocco who'd won some sort of TV show. I'd never eaten there myself, but the place had an excellent reputation. It was fine. He spoke coldly, expressing the emotional intimacy I'd come to expect from men like him. We had a good dinner, but then I realized I'd left my cell phone at home, so we swung by here to pick it up. The babysitter was sitting in the living room. She's been watching Liam for years. That was the first time that either parent referred to their child by name. We came in and she was watching TV. HBO. It's fine. We'd left money so they could order a pizza. The box was on the counter. I glanced over the O'Malley's shoulders into the kitchen, where there was an opening in the wall that served as a kind of breakfast bar. I could imagine the cardboard box lying half open, a slice or two still inside, the grease leaving a dark stain. She said she'd put Liam to bed an hour ago. She'd been watching the TV ever since. The volume was so high that she didn't hear us until we tapped her on the shoulder. She jumped a foot in the air. I think we almost gave her a heart attack. Though she was trying to keep calm, Kindle's voice was near breaking. She was struggling to maintain her composure, and she didn't reach for her husband's hands. She rubbed her own palms together instead. I told her we'd be back in the morning. She wasn't expecting anyone else in the apartment. Why should she? A good question. I found my phone and calmed the girl down. If it had been up to me, we'd have walked right back out the door. I just wanted to wish Liam good night. She went back to check in on him, and that's when we realized he wasn't in bed. At first I thought he was in the bathroom, but when I saw he wasn't there, we looked everywhere. I looked in all the rooms. I checked to make sure the balcony was locked. Liam loved going out there, but we never let him go out alone. So, that explained the lock on the sliding glass door. I looked everywhere. I started to panic. Staring into Killian's eyes, it was hard to imagine him panicked about anything. He had a deliberately practiced calm. Did you check the door to the hall? He could have opened it himself. Killian shook his head. The sliding latch is too high for him to reach. He'd have to stand on a ladder or a chair. He could have replaced it once the latch was open. That's a lot of effort for an eight-year-old. <laughs> According to everyone else, Liam was nine. Killian couldn't even keep the kid's age straight. How long did you look before you called the police? I wanted to alert the building manager right away, but Lan told me to wait. We spent the next two days looking. We called around. We played it off as if he was just late coming home. But by Sunday night, I couldn't take it anymore. 
I told Lan that we had to call the police, so he called a friend of his. Oren told me to keep a lid on it. His best men would be right over. Uh, that's Oren Somerset, the, uh... I know who Somerset is, I said flatly. My time in the department came to a swift end when Lieutenant Powers shut the lid on a situation that I didn't want closed. I tried leaking the information to a local newspaper, and that's when Blake left me spinning in the wind. The reporter had asked me for someone else they could contact to verify my story. Blake West had been a close friend. I expected him to have my back. Instead, he closed ranks and reported what he'd heard to then-Major Somerset, the head of our division. That's how I found myself in a locked-room meeting with him, Lieutenant Powers, and Major Somerset. By the time the meeting was over, I'd resigned. Now, all the pieces were fitting uncomfortably into place. When the officers arrived, they checked everything. They fingerprinted the doors, windows. They searched the building high and low. We called it a drug enforcement check. <laughs> I bet that smug bastard thought that he was being clever. They found a plastic cap in Liam's room. Nothing else was misplaced. Kendall shook her head. Now I knew why Blake didn't think they were behind this. She looked ruined by this whole ordeal. True grief is hard to fake, and if Kendall was acting, she deserved an Academy Award. Just looking at her, it was clear that she was nearing a breaking point. In my experience, women take this kind of thing harder than men do. I'll leave you to decide if that's an ingrained cultural bias or just an evolutionary quirk of gendered hormones. I'm not judging, it's just what I've observed. Kindle's hands were trembling, but Killian made no effort to comfort her. At the same time, she made no effort to be comforted. <laughs> Clearly, there was something foul in Denmark. And what's happened since, I asked. I've done what I could to keep up appearances. I've gone to work, but I'm worried sick. I noted how he said that last part with a decidedly even tone. I've been trying to get ready for the case. It's a big deal, you know. Everyone's eyes are going to be on Cleveland. On me. And if I screw up, well, we don't want another Ferguson here. People could die, lose their livelihoods, lose their community. Who is he trying to convince? Me or himself? This might be the most important thing I've done in my career. I know it must sound cold, but the only thing that's keeping me sane during this whole thing is the knowledge that I'm making this city safer for my son. For everyone. Assuming he's still alive. I don't suppose you could give me a list of the likely enemies you've made over your career. Hundreds of the worst sort, of course. But most of them are too stupid to do something like this. Or they've been locked up for years. I can't think of anyone capable of this. If I could, I'd have told the police. But, well, that's what worries me. What if this is someone trying to derail the case? Or blackmail? Or just some nut in the thrall of these damn protesters with their Black Lives Matter shirts and their short-sighted blindness to the people... The institutions that defend them 24 hours a day. Those people, you know, they don't even see it. They're on a fucking crusade. What would happen if they won? The city would burn, that's what. I jumped as he slammed his hand down on the table. They're crucifying the people that keep them safe. 
I almost want to shut the police down. See how well their little protests go then. There'd be looting, murder. Within a week, they'd be begging for us to come in and remove the thugs they're marching to protect. And they're coming after me because they think I'm not able to do my job. If I wasn't doing my job, I'm, I'm bringing the case to court. Isn't that enough? Or do they need their pound of flesh so badly? Well, I won't sit idle. So I've been busy. That's true. I know it doesn't play to the cameras and all the bleeding hearts, but it's the only way that I can fight back. This is someone trying to extort me. I can't let them win like this. I'm not going to give in to lawless thugs and criminals. You understand? I won't let them beat me. There was sweat running down his neck. He took in a few long, deep breaths, and I examined him carefully. That was the first flare of emotion that I'd seen from him, and for a different reason entirely, I believed that he was innocent of the crime. It wasn't that he wasn't capable. No. At that moment, I believed that if Killian O'Malley decided to kill his family, he wouldn't bother hiding it. I quickly ran through all the questions I had in my head. What did you say the babysitter's name was again? I didn't. I'm gonna have to talk to her. Do you have to? She's already been through so much. If you want your son back, I'm gonna have to talk to everyone who might know something. Everyone. She doesn't. That's the problem. I sighed. <sighs> With all due respect, I'm not convinced that's the case. And even if she didn't understand what she saw, she still might have noticed something that- She doesn't know that Liam's still missing. What? I could hardly believe my ears. Obviously we're not going to hire her again. And anyway, I was afraid that she might go to the press. Or the police. So I called her Sunday morning and told her not to worry. It was all taken care of. Are you fucking kidding me? I blurted it out before I realized that it was on the tip of my tongue. Lying like that was the sort of Mickey Mouse bullshit you see in guys with five warrants on their license or, or two-blit hoodlums, not the goddamn county prosecutor. More than anyone else, he had to know how it was going to look if this ever came to light. Jesus, no wonder Blake and the department were so keen to keep this quiet. If any of this leaked, Killian would probably get disbarred, and the police would almost certainly be investigated by the Justice Department. And truthfully, awful as it might sound, there was a part of me that was glad to see the department thrown over a barrel. I hoped Orin was having a lot of sleepless nights. Listen, I'll do what I can to avoid tipping my hand, but is there anyone else who knows what happened? I'm serious. You can't talk to her. Uh, my sister Mercy knows, too. I nodded. Blake had told me she was in the loop. Our housekeeper's probably suspicious. Explain. Petra takes care of our Bay Village house. Comes by every day, usually makes dinner for Liam and Kindle, tidies up, uh, things like that. We've never spent so long at the condo without bringing her over. Do you trust her? Yes. Not with this. She's raised Liam since he was three. She'd never want to hurt him. We don't know that. I do. Killian frowned and waved his hand dismissively. Less than an hour in, and the cracks were already showing between them. This whole thing was a nightmare. If the kidnapper was trying to extort them, they probably expected it to hit the press. Keeping it quiet might cause them to decide to cut bait with the kid. Or maybe this was an extortion attempt. 
But if it broke now and Killian lost control of the investigation, any leverage they had would be gone. In either case, keeping this quiet was going to make it harder to get Liam back. As for me, I already had a case. And I don't work missing persons. Blake knew that as well as anyone. But right now, I was looking down the barrel and I couldn't look away. I could give two shits about Killian O'Malley's career, but no son deserves to die because his dad is a soulless piece of shit. So, even with everything in my gut telling me to walk away, I was certain that the kid would die without my help. Seeing as how he'd come to me, of all people, Blake seemed to be thinking the same thing. That's how I found myself in the middle of this nightmare. What other things do I need to know? Like what? Killian turned to his wife. The kind that might make us look guilty if he finds out later. Or the kind that might help me get your son back alive. The couple exchanged a long, slow glance. The kind that made me pay even closer attention than I already had. Killian leaned forward. Earlier this year, my wife and I were separated. Why? It's the sort of question most people are too polite to ask. I can't afford not to. We were fighting. She moved out for a few months, and I saw a shrink for a while. We were able to work it out, but I know how that'll look. Good, good. It's good that you told me. Is there anything else? Killian frowned. Men like him always have their fair share of baggage. I was reminded again of why I didn't like to take cases like this. But here I was. An hour later and we were walking out the door. Blake walked to the stairs. They led directly onto the street and were notably more discreet than walking through the lobby. However, just then I heard a chime from the elevator. Even though we were heading in the other direction, I glanced down the hall to see who it was. This profession requires you to have a good sense of your surroundings. Without it, you're likely to end up swimming in Lake Erie, face down. A tall, athletic woman stepped out of the elevator. She carried herself like she owned the entire building. As she walked towards me, our eyes locked. Good, she said to Blake. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss you. Blake didn't seem thrilled. Is this him? She pointed to me. Blake nodded. She turned towards me with the smile of a carnivore ready to start her next meal. Mercy Malone. She extended her hand. I took it with a smile. Ezekiel Adams. Ezekiel? That's quite the name for a detective. What can I say? This line of work appeals to eccentrics. But I'm not a detective. He prefers the term independent investigator. You think that's funny? She casts the actual detective a wilting glare. Well, I... This is the man you brought in because you couldn't get the job done, Detective West. Let's try not to insult him, shall we? I'd like to get my nephew back alive. I'll do everything I can. I hope so, Mr. Adams. You've got a title to live up to. Independence, real independence, is a commodity that's worth more than most people comprehend. Her eyes flicked towards Blake. I resisted the urge to crack a smile, but it wasn't easy. Mercy allowed for the corner of her lip to curl upwards. As deliberate as it was, it almost felt honest. This woman was a better performer than her brother-in-law, that was for sure. She reached into her purse, 
pulling out a slip of paper and a silver pen. Using her right hand to hold the paper, she jotted something down. I'll be with my sister for a while, but we should talk soon. This is how you can reach me. I'll be up late, so don't worry about the hour. If you have the time this evening, let's put our heads together. She extended her hand again, her palm down and her wrist bent, like a princess waiting for her chauffeur. I lifted my own hand to meet it, taking the paper in one smooth motion. I liked Mercy immediately, as dangerous as she obviously was. Of course, I had to remain independent. She might have scores of her own to settle, and I wasn't one to rule her out as a suspect, no matter what Blake said. In my experience, there was no such thing as an airtight alibi. But I also couldn't deny that this woman had a smile that could cut through glass. She might be a boa constrictor, but she made smothering sound like a pleasant way to go. It was getting late when Blake dropped me off at my car. I was already working an important case before he'd picked me up, and I was still bound to it. Abner was desperate and loaded, two qualities that made him a perfect client. Before I'd left his office, he'd insinuated that one of the other people at Syncorp might be trying to ruin him. He'd given me a long list of enemies, but the name at the top of the list was Lucy Talaverger. Abner was the head of the Synthetic Corporation's research and design groups. Lucy was head of the group that fine-tuned these products for production. More than once, she and Abner had butted heads over a product that he believed was ready for sale, and from the way Abner had described their history, Lucy could hold a grudge. I asked Abner what she might be holding a grudge for. A few months back, she'd been overruled on a project called Alvin. Now, unless you're a videographer, you've probably never heard of it. Alvin is a new form of stabilization technology for digital video. Right now, Syncorp is negotiating to license Alvin to the largest cell phone companies in the world. The problem is, Alvin chugs power like there's no tomorrow. Lucy decided to streamline some of the chips in some of the prototype phones. She managed to get it down to half the power, but by then it could only master a quarter of the processing. When those models were shown to potential investors, they were less than impressed. Lucy was reprimanded by Syncorp's CEO, Iratu Shimiuro. Apparently, she holds Abner responsible for over-promising on Alvin's performance. There was no knowing if any of this was accurate, of course. Clients lied to protect their own reputations all the time, and even if he believed he was telling the truth, Abner might very well be deluding himself, which meant that I'd have to do some digging of my own on Miss Talaverger. I drove down Clifton Boulevard, parking behind my friend's restaurant. Now, I'm not friends with the owner of this restaurant, mind you, that's just the name, My Friend's Restaurant. The service isn't great, and the food's nothing to write home about, but they're open 24 hours and the coffee's always hot. I sat in my usual booth, back by the far corner. After ordering a coffee and some toast, I opened up my laptop. As long as I tipped well, the staff would let me sit here all night. Instead of using their local Wi-Fi, I plugged my phone into a USB port. This gave me a private encrypted connection. I know how easy it is to pull data off public Wi-Fi networks. Hell, I do it all the time. I went to work, finding out everything I could about Abner, about Lucy Televerger, about the Synthetic Corporation's slow march to its IPO. The chatter online was exactly what Abner had described. Bloggers were calling it the next Facebook, the next Uber. I was reminded of Microsoft, where even the secretarial pool became millionaires overnight. 
Lucy hadn't been at Syncorp for as long as Abner. She had been poached from a larger firm in Silicon Valley. Already I knew that I'd have to be careful. One didn't survive such a cutthroat industry by making friends. Abner had been lucky to get in Syncorp on the ground floor. Lucy, on the other hand, had clawed her way up. I had to be sure I wasn't being used to sabotage one of his rivals. It wasn't likely, but it wouldn't be the first time a client hired me under false pretenses. Before long, I had files on Lucy, Abner, Iratu, and the company. I encrypted them and sent them to my private server. That may sound paranoid to you, but several people have tried to steal my files before, so it's better to be safe than sorry. Leaving a sizable tip, I left the restaurant. I climbed back into my car and considered heading straight back home, but then I remembered Mercy Malone and that she told me not to worry about the hour. It was nearly eleven o'clock, so I was going to put that to the test. Pulling out the note, I expected it to be merely a phone number. However, my jaw dropped when I saw what she'd written. I know who took Liam. My number is 216-623-1111. Shit, I muttered. I should have looked at the note sooner, as soon as I lost Blake, but I'd been thinking about Abner and the sweet payout. Sometimes I'm a fucking idiot. I dialed as quickly as I could, turning my head to make sure that no one was within earshot. Thankfully, the lot was empty at this time of night. Mercy picked up on the second ring. I was wondering how long it'd take you to call. A good rule of thumb is never to appear desperate. Thankfully, I was quick on my feet. I wanted to be sure you'd be alone. Very wise, Mr. Adams. You've got good timing, actually. I stopped by a restaurant after I left my sister's. I just finished dinner. If you swing by, we can get a drink together as we discuss our business. That'll work. Did you have a place in mind? Somewhere dark. Somewhere where we can have a private conversation without having to shout over music or bearded losers in their IPAs. <laughs> I nodded, even though she couldn't see it through the phone. I know just the place. I parked my car on West 39th, just south of Denison, within sight of the ugly broad. It's a neighborhood bar in the truest sense of the word. The place feels worn, well used. There's a pool table, an old TV over the bar, and a jukebox against one side. It's almost always got someone sitting there, usually one of several dozen regulars who are hard to distinguish from one another. Most of them are too focused on their drinks to take much notice of strangers, and they wouldn't care much anyways. It's a good place to meet an informant, and it's the perfect place to discuss this case with Mercy Malone. When I arrived, she was already waiting at the far end of the bar. I walked over and sat down beside her. I turned to the bartender and nodded. She shrugged and got to work mixing my usual drink. A moment later, she slid it over. Mercy glanced at it curiously. It's a Marconi wireless, I explained. Marconi wireless? I've never heard of that before. I nodded. Neither of most bartenders. That's why I like it here. Fair enough. Even with a drink in hand, I wasn't here to get drunk. But holding a drink and sipping it slowly, that's a good way to look relaxed. It's also a good way to get the other person drinking. Sometimes you get lucky and their discretion abandons them. Your note was rather dramatic, Miss Malone. If you know who did it, I'm surprised you haven't gone to the police. Mercy paused, eyes scanning the room. 
She waited until everyone else was out of earshot before she even said a word. It's an awful mess. You didn't answer my question, I said. Really? I wasn't aware you'd asked one. Your note. Yes? Are you planning to tell me who you think did- I don't think, Mr. Adams. I know very well who's responsible. However, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm not sure who I can trust with it. Because you think Liam might get hurt? He's probably already dead. She said it so matter-of-factly that I didn't believe my own ears. In the meantime, I'm still alive, and I'd like to stay that way. Cleveland might look like a city, but in all the ways that matter, it's just a big, small town. I knew enough to be wary before I walked in the door. Some folks like to mess with your head. Sometimes they try to influence you with lies, bribes, or certain other favors. Mercy looked like she had favors to spare. Blake had told me that she had an airtight alibi, but I hadn't heard it. And at that point, Mercy seemed like just as likely a suspect as anyone. Listen, there's nothing I can do if you won't tell me what you know. She lifted her glass, which was filled with something brown. She drank it in one long gulp. What do you already know? I can't say. Why? Did the police tell you something? Because everyone colors their version of the story differently, even when they think they're telling the truth. I'm the one who compares the stories, separating the truth from the facts. The truth and the facts aren't the same thing? Facts are facts one way or another. Truth, on the other hand, well, that depends on your point of view. Everyone's truth bends in a different direction, with each one of us drawing a different line. The facts are where the lines overlap, and lies are found in the gaps. Finding those gaps? That's the quickest way to solve a case. You're afraid I'm going to lie to you? <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm afraid. It's just part of the job, Miss Malone. Everyone lies. Mercy snapped her finger and pointed at her glass. The bartender brought over a bottle of Glenlivet and poured another round. As she walked away, Mercy continued. That sounds like a very lonely occupation, Mr. Adams. It's what I'm good at. You didn't answer my question. I wasn't aware that you'd asked me one. Do you have people in your life that you can count on? People that you could share anything with? I don't share everything with anyone. I do have people I can depend on. People I'd trust my life to if it came to that. But I don't burden them with my crap. In this line of work, people expect some level of discretion. And besides, most of it's so boring no one would be interested anyway. I doubt that very much. She smiled as she lifted her glass to her lips. We'd been talking for ten minutes, and she hadn't said one real word about the case. All right, Mercy, let's get back to the note. I'm still not sure what to make of you, Mr. Adams. I can see why the police needed help, but why the hell would you get involved? This case is going to go bad, and it's likely that they're hoping to use you as their scapegoat when it does. You really don't think there's any hope of your nephew being found? I think someone will find him. I doubt he'll be alive. That's pretty fatalistic. It's reality. The world's full of ugly things, and I've learned that the best way to weather them is to steal yourself before the penny drops. That's a hell of a way to live. It's the only way, when things like this happen. Liam's a child, but he's already seen more ugliness in his life than anyone should. Just thinking about it makes me ill. But then, I've got to think about it. You've got a choice. You could have walked away. I want to know why you haven't. It was a good question, actually. Over the next week, I'd ask it myself a hundred times. However, at that particular moment, 
the answer seemed pretty simple. Kids shouldn't have to suffer because of who their parents are. That's a nice sentiment. That's what I think. Well, in my experience, we all suffer because of who we're born to. Maybe so, but that doesn't make it right. And you think bringing justice to this one boy is going to make much of a difference? I think this city's had enough tragedies. I didn't mention the names. Mercy knew exactly what I meant. So you're not in it for the money, or to get your friends in the department out of a jam? <laughs> I don't have many friends in the department. And I may not be rich, but no case is worth it when it's just about the money. I thought that's what your job was, turning other people's tragedy into profit. You're thinking of funeral directors. And I'm sure that you could recommend a few. Your profession tends to bring along the occasional corpse, doesn't it? You've seen too many movies, Ms. Malone. If you say so. I do. Now about that note. She grinned at me, her teeth daggers. You're a tenacious man, Mr. Adams. And an impatient one. Now, we've talked enough. If you've got something to say, this is your chance. I've got better ways to spend my time. There aren't many options at this hour. Stop stalling. She pursed her lips and took a long drink. As she placed the glass back onto the bar, she looked me directly in the eye. It's not really that hard to figure out. My brother-in-law, the boy's father, he's the one who did it. Based on what proof? Years of far too intimate knowledge, Mr. Adams. I've spent the last decade helping my sister cover bruises, and Liam, too. What kind of man uses his family for a punching bag? A troubled one. Ruthless. Tell me more. There was always a dark side to the man. I never liked him much, but I kept my mouth shut once she started to wear the ring he put on her hand. If she was really going to marry him, I wasn't going to let him pull us apart. It wasn't too long after their marriage that the violence began. In truth, I suspect it began before, but Kendall was blind to see what it really was. She assumed he'd calm down, mellow with age. In my experience, most men turn to vinegar, not wine. It's gotten worse, then. Much worse. Not that you'd know it talking to my sister. I love her. You have to understand that. But she's stupid and blind. She should have left him years ago. Not just for her, but for Liam. Did you ever tell her to? Not in words, but I always left my door open. And what kind of door is that? Her eyes narrowed, but she didn't hesitate to answer. I make a good living, Mr. Adams. I could support Kendall and her son for as long as they needed. She knows that. Doing what? I'm the executive director of a large foundation. I'm sure you can find out all the details on that by yourself. <laughs> I'm sure I will. Now let's get back to Killian. If he's always been this way, why do you think he'd kill Liam now? I doubt he meant to. Brutes like him usually don't mean to do anything except inflict themselves onto others. It's only as the dust settles that they see the horror they've done. Then they pretend to be shocked and saddened as if they were powerless as anyone else to stop it. Yet they refuse to change themselves, refuse to accept blame, refuse to try and temper their rage before someone else gets killed. Even after that. Sounds like you know a thing or two about this sort of thing. For a moment, I saw Mercy hesitate. She ran a finger around the edge of her glass, breaking eye contact as she weighed what to say next. When I was nine years old, I watched my father beat my mother to death. I can still remember the way she cried out, the way she begged him to stop. And when it was all done, as Kendall cried over our mother's body, I can remember the way he started to act like he was the victim. 
My sister says she doesn't have a clear memory of that night, but I do. It's clear as day. Killian O'Malley is a lot like our father, and it's obvious to me that my sister will never leave him, not for good. They were separated earlier this year, weren't they? I mean, my sister's brief bout with sanity. After Killian broke her arm and smashed the hole in the side of their condo, I get a panicked call at three in the morning. I had to pick them up from the rapid station. She was afraid to even be in the same room with him. She and Liam lived with me for six months while I fooled myself into thinking that she'd come to her senses. But then he'd managed to talk her into a meeting. She tells me he cried, that he's seen a therapist, that he's a changed man, and they moved back in with him without warning me. I guess she knew what I'd say, and she didn't want to hear it. Now, three months later, my nephew is dead. But you don't have any direct evidence. You don't have to be Alan Turing to add two plus two. I frowned. I'd hoped that Mercy might have some real information, but she was blinded by her hatred for Killian. He was obviously a suspect, and his temperament was clear when I met him. But being an abusive son of a bitch is not the same thing as being a murderer. Regardless of what Killian really was, I needed proof, not innuendo. According to the police, the apartment was clean when they arrived. No sign of struggle, no blood. Blood can be cleaned, Mr. Adams. And I love my sister, but Kendall's a coward. She's always protected him. Did they tell you the reason they were separated? They'd been fighting. He fought. She finally came to her senses and decided she wasn't going to take it anymore. I took her in while she had divorce papers drawn up. Then, out of the blue, she dropped it. I came home to find her and Liam gone. She'd flown back into his arms. Okay, I'll look into it. You don't believe me, do you? I believe that you're telling me the truth. I'm still trying to ascertain the facts. You try to act like you care, Mr. Adams, but you're cold inside. Do you know that? Occupational hazard. So why does a cold man like you take this case, really? Because I can't let the kid die if I have a chance to stop it. Do you really believe that Liam's still alive? I'm not sure yet. And if you found out he was dead, what would you do then? I don't know. I'll cross that bridge when I reach it. So you might not continue. You wouldn't feel honor-bound to bring the killer to justice? <laughs> I really don't know. That's the truth. I watched her frown, her eyes scouring my face for any sign of weakness. She didn't take anything for granted, which made us equals. That's when I asked the question she must have known was coming. With that being said, Ms. Malone, where were you the night Liam disappeared? I was wondering when you'd get to that. The corner of her mouth curled down. I'd be a fool not to ask. The police didn't fill you in? They gave me their notes, but I haven't gone through all of them yet. Besides, it's better to hear it coming from you. More like to catch me slipping up if I'm lying, right? You can take it however you want. I wouldn't harm a hair on Liam's head, Mr. Adams. Trust me on that. My nephew's a sweet child. Better than that brute deserves. And my sister, too. You don't think it's possible that someone could kidnap Liam without wanting to kill him? No, do you? I haven't made up my mind. I have, unfortunately. Every day that passes makes me more certain. But to answer your question, I was in Canada at the time. My mother's from Ontario originally, and I inherited a house near Leamington from my uncle some years back. It's my own personal refuge. I was there when my sister called. The police checked my passport, but you're more than free to take a look. Do you have it with you? It's back in my apartment. It probably wasn't worth the effort, 
Even the most basic investigation could check stamps in a passport, and faking that sort of thing is prohibitively difficult. Besides, there would be a record of her at the border crossing, and the police would be stupid not to have verified that. That's why Blake had called her alibi rock solid. It was actually hard to argue. So what do you do up there? Grow tomatoes? Bird watching? Mercy grinned. Convalescing. And I have to say, Mr. Adams, I'm impressed. Not many Americans pay attention to our neighbors to the north. I used to see a girl who lived in Windsor. Must have visited Point Play a bunch of times. Which was it? The birds or the butterflies? The birds. <laughs> she loved the birds. They're a damn nuisance in the fall. Chirping and flapping and shitting on everything. But this time of year, it's quite pleasant. How often do you go? Every few months. Working for the Foundation keeps me busy, but when I'm up there, I can be myself. It's when I feel right at home. <laughs> you have to leave the country to feel at home. Yes. She sighed and reached down under her lap. She pulled out a hundred-dollar bill from her purse and placed it onto the bar. Well, it's late, Mr. Adams, and I'm a working girl. I can't afford to be out until the middle of the night. I got to my feet. Reaching into my pocket, I grabbed one of my business cards. I might need to speak with you again especially as more facts come to light. Do you have somewhere to be, Mr. Adams? I shook my head. Then perhaps we could continue this interrogation on the way to my apartment. I can show you my passport. She offered a wan smile. Blake used to joke that someday I'd cross the wrong line. Well, the joke was on him, because I got busted for trying to hold the whole department accountable. Mercy was making me an offer that no one in the world could accept and claimed to remain impartial. Taking her up on it would be tremendously stupid. I doubt that'd sit well, I said. Nothing about this case sits well, Mr. Adams. But I'm a woman who knows what she wants, and I avoid any... unnecessary strings, if you get my meaning. Unless I've read you wrong, I suspect you're much the same. <laughs> I laughed at that. And Mercy had one thing right. I'm not complicated. Besides, she looked like she was capable of keeping a secret. All right, I told her. Let's go. Good. I took a taxi here, so you'll have to drive. As we approached my car, Mercy made a conspicuous inspection of its interior. Clean. Not what I expected. You're not married, are you? No. Like you, I don't like to be tied down. That was when Mercy's lips broke into a wicked grin. I said I didn't like strings attached, Mr. Adams. I never said a thing about not being tied down. At 1 a.m., I was lying awake in Mercy's apartment. I thought that she was asleep. That's when my phone buzzed loudly on the nightstand. I reached over to grab it. The screen flashed brightly in the darkness of the bedroom. Expecting a call? No. I typed in my passcode and saw three new messages, all from the same number. A number that I recognized. Shit. Something wrong? She sat up. I shook my head and tried to play it cool, but my mind was racing. It's, uh, s something with another case, I lied. Everything about my relationship with Justine required me to tell another lie. Of course, that was what had kept us alive. I met her a couple years ago. She was friends with several members of one of the city's two crime families. I realized she could provide me with a wealth of information, and at first that's all it was. 
Justine was willing to talk because she hates violence. As long as I was careful to cover for her closest friends, she gave me all kinds of intel on other members of the family. It's because of her that some of the most ruthless criminals in the city are now behind bars. And the fights between them and their rivals? Well, those have cooled considerably. But we'd also set up a series of ground rules about how to contact one another. The rules were important, and we put them in place to keep both of us safe. By calling my personal cell phone, Justine was breaking one of the most important rules. I, uh, I've got to take this. I climbed out of bed and disappeared into the bathroom. I read the messages in quick succession. You up? Call me. It's about my husband. Ah, shit. Bullets and Rust is written, recorded, and edited by Abraham Dunn. The theme music is written and performed by Avril McAnally. The cast for this episode was... Daniel Dean, as District Attorney, Killian O'Malley. Caitlin Hawkins, as Justine Gent. Samantha Hawkins, as Kendall O'Malley. Allison Lightbody, as Mercy Malone. David Payne, as Detective Blake West. It should go without saying, but this series is entirely fictional as are its characters. Any claims of resemblance to actual people says more about the person making them than it does about this show. This has been a Needle Drop production. On the next episode of Bullets and Rust, Justine and I have been having an affair for almost two years. Tonight, someone put two bullets in her husband's back. Meanwhile, Abner's little case of blackmail is getting more complicated by the minute. And even though the O'Malley's told me not to, I can't avoid talking to the one person who was actually there when Liam went missing. The babysitter. The plot continues to thicken on the next episode of Bullets and Rust. <laughs>